Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're talking with Dr. Arthur Brooks. Arthur's the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School. He's authored several books, including the number one New York Times bestseller in 2022, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And his latest co-authored book is entitled Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. But before we talk to Arthur, we want to remind you that if if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help us if you left us a review, especially on Spotify, where we're growing and I know is a preferred platform for many of you. Now let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Dean of the Talbot School of Theology. Well, and it is good to be here and have this conversation. And I'm really, I really worked hard to uh, to try to make this connection. I had to track down where it is. Now, now the now that this interview is being released, there's all kinds of resources on the website. But early on, I wanted to have this conversation in part because of an article I read that led me to get a copy of a book that led to some of this conversation today. Uh, the the book that we're talking about first is actually the the book called From Strength to Strength: Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of life. But I want you to know that I actually read this article called Your Professional Decline is Coming Much Sooner Than You Think. And I read it not just once, but probably five or six times, made my wife read it, shared it with a bunch of friends as well. And I think it helps to frame some of the beginning of our conversation because it actually becomes a chapter in the book, the first chapter of the book. So uh, so tell me, uh, first of all, th- thanks for joining us, uh, Arthur Brooks. We're so appreciative of you being here. But tell us what the, the article responds to the article. What's the point of the article and how did it lead to the book? Yeah, well, thanks, Ed. And thanks, Daniel. It's great to be with you. It's a wonderful podcast. And hello to everybody out there in podcast land. And thanks for the wonderful work that you're doing in your churches and your communities. Um, this article and book that you're referring to, your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think, which turned into from strength to strength. Everybody knows that that comes from Psalm 84, Michael Chael, you know, may you go from strength to strength. Um, that's, that really came, came from personal research that I was doing, um, up to about the year 2022 for about the last eight years before that, I was trying to figure out what God's plan was for me in the second half of my life and what I could actually do well what I could actually get better at. Part of the reason was I was running a big think tank in Washington, D.C. through a lot of that. And and I would look around at my colleagues and friends and many in Washington, D.C. and in these kind of high-powered jobs. And I would notice that they were kind of not doing as well as they had been before, but they couldn't quite get off the train until they got a shove. And, and there was a lot of sadness and regret. And I finally had this experience that made me say, there's got to be a better way. I was flying from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. I flight I did a lot. And it was dark. I couldn't actually, I couldn't see people, but I could hear a couple behind me on the plane. And the husband, I could tell by his voice, I was assuming it was a married couple. I could, and I assumed they were elderly by the sound of their voices. The husband was telling his wife he might as well be dead. And his wife was trying to, you know, no, it's not true. And then he would say, nobody remembers me. And she would say, people still do too. She was clearly lying to the old guy and, you know, trying to make him feel a little bit better, good wife, et cetera. And I thought to myself, well, Poor guy. You know, he's disappointed with the way his life turned out. He probably didn't live up to his expectations. He didn't get a good get a good college education, all that stuff. Anyway, we land in D.C. and and the lights go on and we all stand up. And I, I'm kind of curious to get a look at the old guy. And 
it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. Somebody that every single one of us knows who he is. He's done 10 times more with his life than I'll probably ever do with mine. He's an authentic hero. He's not some politician or entertainer. He's a real hero who changed American life for the better in the 60s and 70s. And, and he's somebody that everybody recognizes. He's rich, he's famous, and justifiably so. Now, I'm a social scientist. So the first thing that I'm thinking, I mean, I work on human behavior, neuroscience. This is what I work on. And I'm thinking to myself, either my model for getting happier as I get older, which is bust my pick, be super successful, do as well as I possibly can, bank it and die happy. Either that model's wrong or something's broken with this man. And I decided, given the fact that I was feeling pretty insecure about my life at that point, I was a CEO, but I knew I had to do something different, but I didn't know what it was. I better figure this out. So I go home and I tell my wife, Esther, I said, honey, I had this kind of alarming experience. And I told her about it. She said, huh, well, you have a PhD for a reason, right? And, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm making a living. And I, you know, a bunch of lame stuff. And she said, no, 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 no. You know, professor, teach thyself. Use these, use all of these data and, and, and scientific techniques that you've got and figure out how you can live your best life. Figure out where you're supposed to go. Think and pray on your knees about where God wants you to go. And maybe, just maybe, with the intellect that you've been given, you can figure out how not to wind up like the man on the plane. And that was the genesis of this research project. Hmm. Yeah, I remember when Ed sent me your article, Ed, we were recording an episode of Such a Leadership Podcast, and we were talking about this. And it felt a little bit depressing to kind of realize that, <laughs> man, our professional decline may be upon us right now. And so, uh, Arthur, help us to see like the other side. Like, What's the good news uh, coming out of this? Well, to start with, why is it that people tend to go into professional decline? And the answer is not because you're some sort of lazy loser. The truth is that there's a form of intelligence called fluid intelligence that tends to be very high in your 20s and 30s and goes into decline in your 40s and 50s. That's the, cur the curve, the, the curve of your intelligence that makes you good at what you do early in your career. Fluid intelligence is high in working memory, high in indefatigable focus, your ability to solve problems, your ability to innovate. So if you're somebody who can solve a problem, let's just, I don't know, maybe you're a you're an unbelievable biblical scholar and church planter. You're going to get really good at that through your 20s and 30s. But here's the problem. It peaks in your late 30s and early 40s and then starts to decline. And it's true for everybody. Now, maybe nobody notices this, but what you will notice is that what once gave you joy doesn't. You start to burn out in your mid-40s. But once you had just energy, energy, you want to do more and more, you're like, I don't know, man. Maybe, you know, my dentist at age 43 started taking Fridays off to golf. She's a great dentist. And I said, you know, why are you doing that? Do you love golf? She says, no, I hate golf, but I just don't love being a dentist anymore. The reason is because she was on the wrong side of her fluid intelligence and excellence in her profession. That's the bad news, Daniel. Here's the good news. There's another intelligence curve behind it that doesn't rely on the same skills called crystallized intelligence. This is an intelligence based on your wisdom, your accumulated knowledge, your ability to recognize patterns, and your ability to teach. This happens and increases through your 40s, gets higher in your 50s, gets higher in your 60s and 70s, and can stay high for as long as God gives you your marbles. That's what you get for the rest of your life. Your crystallized intelligence is your professor curve. Your fluid intelligence was your innovator curve. So the first curve is your Mark Zuckerberg curve. And your second curve is your, I don't know, your Pope Francis curve. That's something that, you know, it's, it's the old people's profession. That's the reason, by the way, when I have young 
the young pups who come to Harvard right out of graduate school as, as, as junior professors, and they'll say, hey, what's the secret to good teaching evaluations? I say, get old. That's the secret to good teaching evaluations because old teachers, old historians, people who need accumulated wisdom, who need to see patterns, who are better mentors, these are the people that, that, that are the people who succeed the most. So what this means, basically, for all of us, is that the pattern of your career should not be to try to keep doing what you once were good at, but to step on to the second curve. If you're a lawyer, be a star litigator at 30. Be the managing partner at 60, where you're identifying the next, next generation of talent and training them. Be a startup entrepreneur at 30. Be a venture capitalist at 60, where you're finding the next great crop of entrepreneurs and teaching them how to do it. And this is true in every profession. Go from researcher to professor, which is what I've done in my life. I'm writing for a, an audience of 500,000 people a week. I get to do this kind of thing. I'm explaining to non-technical specialists these ideas from neuroscience and social science because I'm a better professor than I would have been at 30. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about, um, and I'll probably personalize it a little bit. So I, like I said, Daniel can tell you, I sent him the article, sent a bunch of people the article. And um, part of it was processing a series of things in my own life. I was at Wheaton College, and I, I'm trying to, we, we've met at a couple of places where you spoke right. either Wheaton College or Biola University things. So I was at Wheaton College, a dean there, a professor there. But I had decided to think through, you know, what what's next? And it could have been something at Wheaton College. They'd asked me to do some very specific and exciting things. But I began to. But one of the things I, I was asked to consider being the pastor of a of a of a church that that people might be might know of, and um and and I was in this conversation saying, you know what? I think at my age, mid fifties, is. I need to be thinking probably less in that pastoral space and more in, in my particular wiring, I had a couple of doctoral degrees, that kind of stuff, to go and to stay in academia and maybe become a dean at Biola, which is what I ended up doing. But my point is this, I think for a lot of pastors in their 50s and 60s, uh, they start to feel a little bit of, um, they're not the person they used to be and maybe sometimes, like if you're a pastor and you leave a church at 55 years of age and you go looking for another church, it's hard to find that. And so for me, I had this path to being the dean at a, a wonderful Talbot School of Theology. It's great. But for a lot of pastors, they get a sense of desperation around here because they can feel like people are ready for a younger pastor to take the place. They're not sure where they can go if they leave this place. So our audience is probably unique. I guess every audience is. But, and again, because I'm a little bit of not the great example because I could go into academia, but if we had all the pastors going to academia, it wouldn't work. So what would you say to the pastor who's, you know, passing 40s, going into the 50s and saying, how am I going to find success and significance in a culture that wants, like, everyone wants a 40-year-old pastor with 40 years experience and four doctoral degrees. So how do you help think about those people in that ministry space? There are other similar businesses and professions that are like that, but help us think about that. Well, so I, you know, I can give you an example, a real life example of somebody who kind of accidentally did it right. And that's my own grandfather. I look back with wonder at his career. He started off as a real, you know, hard hustling, you know, church entrepreneur. He started religious schools. He was a, a Methodist minister from the evangelical tradition. And he was a, he was a, a school planter. He, you know, he was the leader of the, the head of the Methodist mission school in the Navajo nation where my father was born. Well, my father was born relatively late. I think he was an accident with my grandmother and grandfather. And he was born when they were in their forties. So when my dad was a little kid, six years old, this is during world war two, 
my grandfather comes home and announces to the family, he's made a decision. He's going to go look for something new because he doesn't have his groove. So they packed up the car. This is like 1942. And they go up to his alma mater, which was Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, knocks on the door and says, do you have something that I can do with my experience? Is there something I can do? He started doing general administration work, helping out. Within a couple of years, he was the dean of students at Wheaton College and teaching a class in theology. Happily so. He went from there after 10 years to Westmont College out in Santa Barbara, where he did the same thing. And he was this eminence where he was teaching where he was a dean of students and he was not trying to use that that fluid intelligence to plant the schools and to prepare the sermons and to do everything in this entrepreneurial way that required so much innovation so much energy that he simply didn't have and he went on to have a very very happy life look for that that crystallized intelligence curve where you can exploit your unbelievable wisdom without trying to draw on that entrepreneurial energy that you had early on in your life. And you'll be a lot happier. My grandfather certainly was. Fascinating. Okay. But so, but I want to come back to that because, because I think that that pastor to education pathway is obviously the one I took, right. but there's not a lot of space in that. I mean, I, right yeah. now people at Wheaton College are getting very nervous about all the pastors are going to show up there to be the new Dean of Students. And I love, I love that connection. So, um, so if I'm going to be in place where most people are going to stay in a similar role, but their entrepreneurial ability and energy is lower, but their crystallized intelligence is greater. So, I mean, how does that work? You're talking about that second curve. How do I do that in place if I'm going to stay in place, not in a new place? Does that make sense? Does yeah. it make sense yeah, what I'm it asking? Does. Okay. It does. Think about anybody can actually be in a role where they are responsible for doing less of the innovation and more of the teaching. Okay. And the way to do that is to be a mentor to more people. Good. To actually think about how you can identify and cultivate the next generation of talent. To think about how you can be less the, you know, the the glorified leader and more the good manager of other people. So you can you what you find is that people over over 60 and even over 70, they tend to be the best managers of people because they're 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 coaching leaders is the way that this works out. How can you be more less of an uh, of a single star and more of a coaching leader? That's what it comes down to. And everybody's going to find their own way. Maybe that's in their own church is where they're doing that. Maybe that's in their own community where they're doing that. They don't have to go to some fancy place like Biola, you know, an elite school like Biola. I mean, great. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you're there. But not everybody can do that. But everybody needs these people, even in the, the non-elite spaces. Yeah. How can you do this more? Look, there's a lot of clergy, a lot of young clergy out there that they need mentors. They actually need older friends. They need people who can actually help give them ideas. This is what we're really good at. People will say to me a lot, they'll say, you know, when they're like, they become basketball coaches when they're 60 years old for the first or little league or, you know, teaching people at the community center, what they're good at. They'll say, I ne- I just love teaching it. You know, accountants that will start teaching one class just for fun at a community college, whatever it was to be. And they'll say, I had no idea I liked teaching. I didn't know I was good at it. And I say, you weren't, you weren't good at it. But now you are because you've got the crystallized brain. The other way that, that people can do this is to think about how they can be more of a historian because a historian is somebody who has pure crystallized intelligence. Historians on average do half of their professional work after the age of 65. And the better half is the second half. So, you know, any historian at a university, take care of your health because you're going to write your best books in your 80s if you've got your health. Okay, so that doesn't mean everybody needs to be a history teacher. 
But there's a lot of history out there. There's a lot of institutional memory out there that actually people can bring. And with a lot of joy, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, inspiration that they can actually bring because they're good at seeing all the patterns that are out there. So look for the inner teacher and look for the opportunity to be the teacher, coach, mentor, historian, whatever that means in your life and your circumstances. Hmm. I want to personalize this just the way, and and you've done this. I'm I'm 43, uh, and I felt like I've lived a a pretty decent half of my life already. I want you to unpack a little bit more about the second curve, and I'll ask you this in like two particular ways uh, or two questions. Number one, do you need to enter a midlife crisis in order to enter into the second curve? And then secondly, like how do we make the best of the second curve? What do we need to do? Okay. So- there is no midlife crisis necessary. When you see a midlife crisis is because people hold on to the fluid intelligence curve too long and then have to climb up out of the basement to get on a new curve if they can ever find it at all. That's the midlife crisis. Now, the time between your curves is a time that psychologists call liminality. Liminality is this is this time, it, it means you're, you're betwixt and between is what the scholars like to call it. I don't even know what betwixt mean. I've, I've never used that in common speech, but you get the idea that you're between these things. It's intensely uncomfortable, but it's unbelievably fruitful mm. because when you don't have your groove on, you're not doing the same things. You're not quite sure who you are. You find that you're able to do all sorts of new things. Now that period can be really positive or can be really negative if you, if you hung on for 10 years too long to the wrong curve that's when it actually can become a crisis. So no, it's not necessary, but it often does happen because nobody tells us or we don't believe it, that there's something else that could come later or we're just too scared to try to something do something new or we have too much pride to actually let go of the things that we were once good at despite the fact that we're burning out and not as good at them as we used to be and getting a shove from other people. We dig our heels in and then it can actually become a full-blown crisis. Now, the second curve actually requires a lot of humility. The first curve is the star curve. Look, there's a lot of uh, the kings of the mambo here who are watching us. You know, that's like you got all these people and they think you're great. And they're like, oh, that was, oh, like, you know, that was a, what a great sermon that was. And, you know, it, there's so much positive reinforcement when you lead a church. There's also a lot of tension and anger and problems when you lead a church. I get it. But but the truth of the matter is that you're. it's very easy to to think of yourself as a unique, precious flower, sort of a star when you're on the on the fluid intelligence curve. The crystallized intelligence curve isn't like that. And the reason is because you're making stars. You're helping people to see their potential. This is the this is your opportunity to become the person you're supposed to be to pass on your skill to other people. You go from the me curve to the we curve, if you want to think about it that way. And that that actually is hard on people's ego, but that's super important. That's such a gift that we can actually do that as we get older in life to have, you know, God give us this gift of, you know, instantiating humility. I mean, humility, it's like meek and, 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 and poor of spirit a little bit getting on that curve and you can build other people up. So we have to think about it in that way. People who actually, we start to dig in on the humility of that second curve, start to see other people in terms of what they can create for them. These are the people who succeed the most, succeed spectacularly. I've got case study after case study of this stuff. You know, I look at Johann Sebastian Bach, maybe the world's greatest composer. He was the best innovator of the high Baroque late, early in his life. And he he got out of his groove later. I mean, that musical styles passed him by. He was completely left in the dust by his own composer kids, as a matter of fact. He did not, you know rage at the heavens and shake his fist at the stars. No, 
What he did was he re he, he took his whole career and he became the greatest teacher of his generation by converting his own career into teaching um, music at the Thomas Kirche in Leipzig, where he was the choir director and the organ teacher. And, and he taught composition and he wrote these chorales, you know, it was his, by the way, he's often called the fifth evangelist because he was so deeply Christian. He finished every single one of his scores saying to the greater glory of God. But before he died, he was asked, why do you write music? And he said, the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. And he was saying that not just because he was some big star by the end, he wasn't a big star but because he was actually teaching people that that his apostolate, his living apostolate was writing these particular notes. He died a happy man. He was surrounded by his kids and his grandkids and his students. And he didn't even know that hundred years after he died, he'd be considered the greatest composer who ever lived. He was obscure by that point, but he was living up to the crystallized intelligence that, that, that really can be our promise if this is what we want to live up to. Yeah, the crystallized intelligence just really was very influential in my decision-making, thinking, and process, and even partly just in my own journey. You know, I was kind of a young, smart, alkali church planner and and uh, and and really loved leading and changing and innovating. And the last few years, I've just taken a greater and greater joy in, in elevating other voices and and letting you know about people that are that are that are that are more innovative and more intelligent and better. And you know, I mean, just to partner with people like Daniel Yang and lots of others. So. I think that is a natural thing that I've just loved in my own journey. I think for sometimes for older pastors and people in churches who are pastoring older people, there's a, there's a fear that they have right. and that, that fear keeps them sometimes from, from stepping into that next thing. If, if I'm not the, the young innovator, I've always remember, you know, I was always the youngest person at this agency or the youngest person to finish this degree. Right. And then then I'm not. And and I've loved leaning into that, but I've seen the fear, and I really I don't I don't I don't want to overstate it, but I really think it's a fear in a lot of pastors that I'm gonna be pushed aside. You mentioned being pushed aside or marginalized right. in that, but embracing a new way of thinking, this crystallized intelligence. So you've really done super just contextualizing to our audience. Uh what are some ways that you think people sort of block engaging that that second curve? What are some roadblocks they put up that keep them from doing it? Well, to begin with, a lot of people, they they see themselves as an object. They see themselves as their job. They see themselves as their position. And the result is that they, they don't live a full human life. You aren't your job. You aren't your position. You aren't your title. You're a child of God. You're probably a husband or wife. You're probably a father or mother. You're certainly a friend to other people. And these are the roles that we really have that, that we have to understand ourselves as. You know, I, I talk to so many people who are struggling, struggling, struggling to get into a second period of their life. And they're just struggling to stay on that first curve because it's how they understand themselves. It's an incredible threat to their self-identity to not do something they once were good at because they're afraid they'll look in the mirror and say, who's that dude? They don't understand who that actually might be. But there's also another thing, which is this, this overweening pride that we have in ourselves that we, that'll get in, in, in the way even of our own happiness. A woman I was talking to, a titan on Wall Street, my age, late 50s, just miserable, running her company, missing a step, doubted by her, her employees, but they don't dare tell her. And I said, well, how are your relationships? She said, well, my husband and I were kind of roommates. I, I'm pretty cordial with my adult kids, but I don't see them very much. And, and, and I said, well, why don't you step back, go away with your husband, 
get to know your kids, take a souvenir in your company, do some new things. And she said, I know that that would make me happy, but I've always chosen to be special rather than happy. Boom, man. I mean, she wow. told me that wow. and, and that was like a knife to my heart. I mean, it was, I can't tell you, you know, I was a CEO in those days and, you know, I was running this company thinking like I was a big shot, et cetera, but I'd chosen special over happy many times. I'd been the 14th hour of the office before yep. the first hour with my kids when they Same were here. little. And I'm telling you, they grew up, they didn't stop. And I missed a lot of their childhood because I was choosing special over happy including when I was struggling against these curves along the way. So what I recommend is, man, everybody, you know, you know, in your heart, the formula, choose happy over special. God's gift to you is happiness. Don't choose the specialness, the specialness over happiness. Let's just say that that's not coming from the light. That's coming from the darkness. Mm. Yeah, so much of this conversation can sound like an, an old man on old person's conversation, but let, let's do some preventative work here, uh, Arthur, because yeah. I know, one of the things that you talked about was really helpful was this idea of the striver's curse. Yeah. Um, and so professional decline feels super heavy. I think I feel like if you're living into uh, the idea of striving for success, can, can you unpack that, what you mean by striver's curse? And then specifically, uh, like, how do we respond when we find out that, like, we're in the decline after we've tried so hard to work for success? Well, the striver's curse is this funny, funny um, <clears throat> phenomenon you see in the data. At about age, most people, they tend to, to increase in happiness from their early 50s until about age 70. The big majority of the population gets happier in their 50s and 60s. But age 70, the, the population breaks up into two groups. Half keep getting happier till the end, and the other half start getting unhappier. Now, who is in the happy group versus the unhappy group? Most people would say that the happy group is people who made a lot with their life and they were really successful. That's exactly wrong. The people who are most successful in worldly terms, they tend to be in the bottom half, declining in their happiness after 70. And the reason is because if you have a big party with your life, you're going to know when it's over and it's no fun. Plus, it's kind of disappointing when you've tried to be number one your whole life and you can't be number one anymore. That's a finding from, from a couple of social psychologists at the University of Texas at Austin who've done work on on the burden of high achievers, people who are identified as the hardest workers, super strivers before they were 20, best students, always succeeding. They were the ones most likely to be disappointed with their lives after 80. It's hard to live up to your own expectations if you need to be number one, even harder to live up to your mother's exp expectations about you. And after 80, they tend to be very disappointed. So that to be mindful about getting on the second curve, adjusting their expectations, enjoying the fact that the, that the second curve is much more fun than the first curve, way more satisfying than the first mm -hmm. curve. When you're on that second curve and you're in the groove, you're like, man, this is the best. <laughs> this is the best, but you got to get on it. I'm loving, I'm loving the uh, conversation, the practicality that's there. The book, just to remind everybody, and you can actually tell. I mean, this I have guests on all time, and I like to read their books. But this this book, obviously, the article, and then the book had an impact, pretty significant impact on me, Daniel, and some others. Again, the, the book we've been talking about is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. But just what just came out is the, the new book you've written, Build the Life You Want, and uh, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. And there's all kinds of dimensions to this. But but again, our audience, this pastor and church leader audience, uh, sometimes um, people who work in the ministry sometimes don't think that they should pursue. Maybe they should just pursue 
uh, some sort of uh, some sort of denial of self and not engaging in happiness. But you kind of talk a little bit of your own journey. Tell us a little bit how Build the Life You Want, the, the brand new book, uh, and how it relates to your personal journey. And let's dig in a little bit on that. Yeah, you know, happiness is funny because a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, they tend to think it's sort of unremitting happy feelings, you know, happy feelings. That's not happiness. Happiness is not feelings. Feelings are evidence of happiness. The truth of the matter is that real happiness is a combination of enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. And all three of those things require that we actually experience some unhappiness as well. The biggest thing for all of us to understand about happiness is that it's not a destination. It's a direction. There's no actual pure happiness this side of heaven. It just doesn't exist. The goal is never happiness. It's happierness. It's actually getting happier by living in a particular way where you're you're communing with you know, the emotions that God gives you. You're having the experiences such that you can learn and grow and offer them up in virtue and love to other people. So there's nothing on the contrary. You know, the idea that we would find the you know the, the bliss in the beatific vision has has there's no tension with actually getting happier as people because the science says and also our experience should say that getting happier is something we should be able to do as we grow in virtue and as we grow in love now my own journey to figure this out was not straightforward you know the truth of the matter is that you know i'm a relatively gloomy person by disposition i have relatively high intensity of negative emotion all of these things are very common there's nothing abnormal about this the biggest mistake we make in our therapized culture is to tell young people in particular that if they're feeling gloomy or blue or anxious or depressed, that there's something wrong with them, that they're defective. You know, the hippies used to say, if it feels good, do it. Today, young people are taught to say, if it feels bad, treat it. No, no. I mean, the truth of the matter is that there's good and there's bad and God gives you a lot of both. And the reason that you have negative emotions is because mother nature wants you to survive and pass on your genes. And God wants you to use these things to learn and grow. So a happy life has all of these things. It took me a, it took me a combination of my work in, in, in social science, social psychology, uh, behavioral economics, neuroscience, and with a, back, with a smattering of a background of philosophy, plus, most critically, my Christian faith for me to understand that and to start making progress along these lines that I could pursue happierness over the rest of my life, be comfortable with my discomfort so I can learn and grow and pass on the things that I learned to other people. And in to do so, I'm living up to my Christian witness in the most fulsome way. Mm. You, you know, Bob Dylan said, happy, happy is a yuppie word, he said. Um, and uh, you, you did a good job unpacking why it's deeper than just feelings. Uh, so we, we, as we get close to the end of this uh, podcast, uh, Arthur, I would, would love to get a little bit more personal with you. Like yeah. in this season of life for you, I mean, you're building the life that you want. What does happiness look like for you? What are the elements of happiness for you these days? The good news is the happiness of the elements of happiness for me are the same as they are for everybody. And build the life you want. Um, we write about the four pillars of the happiest life, and they're they're pretty straightforward. If you can emotionally self-manage to not be distracted, you need to put basically your energy into four accounts every day, your faith, your family, your friendship, and work that serves other people. That's it. <clears throat> I don't care if you're an electrician or a, you know, you're a, a church pastor or a college professor, president of the United States. We all can do these things. Now, when I say faith, I don't necessarily mean my faith, but mine's working pretty darn good for me. I'm, I'm a, I'm so grateful every single day to be a Christian man. And I don't, I just frankly don't know how I'd put one foot in front of the other if I didn't have that. 
And so the result of it is that if I'm digging into that, I mean, you got to do the work. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a follower of the master. And then, you know, did you pray today? Did you read the book today? Did you, did you, or you didn't? It's a yes or no question. And you got to make these investments, your family life, critical, critical. Now, of course you don't put your family first. That's a cult. Familyism is a cult, but you actually have to make these investments. One in six Americans is not talking to a family member because of politics today. My friends, that is insanity. There's only one reason to have schism with family, and that's abuse and political differences of opinion are not abuse. Mm-hmm. Friendship. Friendship is one of the most important parts of Christian life, but it's got to be real friends, not deal friends. And and pastors, you know, the not ministry friends, right? You actually have to have friends, not friends. just ministry friends. And yeah. what they have, what 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 real friends are is useless. Cosmically, yeah. they're not useful. They're useless. You just love yeah. them. You got to do the work to maintain these. And last but not least, your work needs to be an apostolate. You need to sanctify your ordinary work as a gift to others and a gift to the Lord. And if you're not thinking about that, you're just going to miss the boat because you're going to be thinking about the worldly glory and the idols of money, power, pleasure, and fame. And you're going to be completely distracted from what we need. So that's the formula. It's not a hard one. And it works for everybody. And I'm telling you, you guys, it's just, it's rocking my world. I mean, it's like God gave me this knowledge and I finally applied it to my life. I'm such a dope. It took a long time. But faith, family, friends, and work, as I put those bricks in place every single day, um, I see I see the results and everybody can see them as well. Yeah, and I would say for a lot of pastors hearing, you know, their faith, that means not preparing a sermon for somebody else's faith, their family. That means spending time with them and friends. It means not ministry right. friends, not, I said, useless, as you, as you said. And, and the work that serves others, I think, is so good. You also talked about idols, and we're kind of running out of time, but I wanted, the idols I thought were really helpful, and they would relate some to ministry work. So talk to us about the idols we waste yeah. our time with. This actually comes from the work of, of Thomas Aquinas, who was paraphrasing Aristotle, that you know, Thomas Aquinas said um, in the Summa Theologia, you know, this seminal work, this uh, magisterial work, that was the greatest work from 1265. He writes that 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 people want God. But you know, there's a lot of one-sided conversations and a lot of rules that are kind of inconvenient for people. So people will take a substitute that seems kind of divine. And it turns out he's a very good social scientist. He said there's four substitutes that people tend to follow, and everybody follows one or two more than the others. They are, exhaustively, the idols in life that will distract you from pursuing God and put you in the opposite direction. Every time that you're not on your faith walk, it's because you're pursuing one of these things. They are money, power, pleasure, and honor. And by honor, I don't mean my son in the Marines who serves with honor. I mean people honoring you. And everybody has one idol more than the other. Every time you do something where you're not the person you want to be, you're not the Christian you want to be, it's because you're pursuing that idol. And it's an incredibly useful framework for knowing ourselves. I make all of my secular students at Harvard play a little game called What's My Idol? Where I take them and I, and I make them eliminate the ones they don't really care about. So they'll say, yeah, I don't care about power. Yeah, okay, good. I don't care that much about money. Okay, well, now it's getting hot in here, right? Because you just left fame and and, and pleasure. Which one would you give up? They're like, I give up pleasure. I said, now we know you're idle. You want <laughs> Instagram followers. You want the admiration of strangers. You want prestige. You want people to praise you. And they're like, right. yeah. and, and, fame, and fame for a pastor doesn't mean, you know, couldn't necessarily mean an Instagram influencer, but the same idea can still be at work in these things. And power Absolutely. can be right. your influence in the church. So these are all things. Don't, don't, oh, yeah. don't, pastors and church leaders, don't think that that's what doesn't apply oh, to no. you. It does. Fame is very, very local. Yeah. It's the admiration of the people who matter. 
And if there's only 10 people who matter, being famous means you have their admiration is what it comes down to, whether you're world famous and, 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 and you're recognized at the airport or not. And so we have to understand these things because look, I mean, th th this is how the dark one works his way into our lives is by looking a little godlike and then giving us these things that are substitutes. That's the bottom line. But once you know, knowledge is power hugely Im impactful and influential in my life. Remember, okay, and the basic way to think about it is you got the bad four, money, power, pleasure, and fame, which by the way, you can use those things for great good, but only if you use them as a springboard to the good four, which is faith, family, friends, and work that serves. Hmm. You've been listening to Dr. Arthur Brooks. Be sure to check out his books, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life, and Build a Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. You can learn more about Arthur at arthurbrooks.com. And thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.